0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Private equity, what's changed? How about everything and nothing? On this week's exchange, I discuss this and more with Scott Sperling, co-CEO of private equity firm Thomas H. Lee. Hello, I'm Lauren Silva-Laughlin, Global Deals Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and welcome to the exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. The private equity industry has had its ups and downs, and right now it is on the up, and up, and up, in a big way. Last quarter it broke deal records, set during the last boom, and some things are the same and others are very different. And here to talk about it all is Scott Sperling, Co-Chief Executive Officer of THL Partners or T.H. Lee, as I know them, or Thomas H. Lee Partners, as some of you might know them. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for coming on.
1: You're very welcome, Lauren.
0: So T.H. Lee has invested in over 150 companies since it was founded in 1974, though I, I think the way we really know private equity um, now, I would say you sort of started investing in that way in 1989, but that puts you among some of the sort of veterans of the industry, KKR, the KKRs of the world. Um, Right now, you are actively investing about $14 billion, though today we saw in the news that Carlisle is reaching for a record private equity fund. So let's just talk, sort of start talking about how the private equity business has bifurcated since the last boom, where you have you know, the Blackstones and the Apollos and Carlisle's publicly traded now, asset gathers huge companies and private equity for them is is getting bigger, at least in size, if not a proportion of what they do. And then there's you and sort of Bain and some of the other veterans in the industry who have stayed the same or maybe in some cases even gotten smaller. Is this a, resort, a result of sort of some of the things you've learned after the last cycle?
1: Well, I I think there are uh, different ways to get to similar places. And what we've seen is that there are a number of firms that are highly focused on becoming very large um, asset managers across the various types of private asset categories, what we used to call alternative assets. And if you look at a Blackstone with uh, its enormous success across uh, a number of individual private asset classes, whether it's private equity as we traditionally knew it, uh, moving into some of the earlier stage life science uh, sorts of things that, that they've done by acquiring some firms that have that capability. Uh, it's the enormous franchise that has been incredibly successful in real estate that they built that uh, John Gray you know, really came out of. Uh, It's the work that they've done uh, on the debt side. That would be an example of, um, you know, uh, a a firm that's undertaken a strategy to expand across private asset classes, all the while continuing to build as an important element, but not the sole element, their private equity business. You know, similarly, you know, as Mark Rowan has talked about with Apollo uh, very recently, the move into the areas of managing more fixed income-like uh, private assets, really through the growth of things like Athene, you know, is the way that, that Apollo has grown the breadth of their assets under management. But they still have a very large commitment to the more traditional private equity world. So a whole set of, of firms, um, mostly publicly traded, but have expanded... Um, if you will, horizontally across private assets. And then there are a number of us who've stayed highly focused much more on the pure private equity side where we've each tried to create a franchise that provides competitive advantage in the areas that we tend to uh, want to invest in. And that's really been the strategy that we've undertaken. And particularly over the last uh, 15 years, we've been very highly focused on investing very heavily in the breadth of our capabilities, in ever narrower areas of of investing focus. So um, we tend not just to look at uh, just um, three sectors, uh, financial services slash FinTech, healthcare, and what we call technology and business solutions, but within each of those very large sectors where we have dedicated groups of investment and operating professionals, We tend to identify subsectors that we think are particularly attractive and really try to focus in on those. So, you know, we uh, are characteristic of firms that have tried to increase their focus within that private equity category. And there are others who have been incredibly successful at building very big franchises across private assets.
0: So, when you did you guys ever talk about this idea of becoming publicly traded and really large? Or, you know, can you talk me and and if so, when did that discussion happen? And has it happened over a series of number of years? Or did you see your peers in two thousand six seven doing this and think that's just not going to be for us?
1: I, I think it's more the latter um, that you know there there are a, a, a number a number of us who like the private equity business and really want to continue to be highly focused in that one core area. And quite frankly, to be a successful large public vehicle, it is better to have the diversification that you see characteristic today of the Blackstones, Carlyles, KKRs, a number of others who again have built up major franchises, not just in private equity, but across a number of uh, private asset classes that allow them to provide a, a profile that, that is more acceptable to public market investors, as opposed to mm-hmm. a natural volatility that may occur in any one of those, only one of those uh, asset classes
0: but you guys I've seen something like a number between two and three trillion dollars that private equity that is meant to be sort of invested in private equity or, or as they say you know the sort of loose change in the private equity business looking for yep. uh, looking for an asset looking for a so, home <laughs> looking for a home so do you still consider then I mean presumably you're competing with not only Blackstone but 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 everybody right are you guys still all sort of going after the same deals or did you think so, about things differently than you did in the last sort of
1: yeah, so if, you, if if you think about our, our history, you know we started off as growth investors at a time when the traditional private equity business, which you know we used to call the buyout business, the leverage buyout business, was more focused on trying to find value in uh, complicated assets that were worth more split up than they were together. Um, and you know our strategy from our very founding uh, was more focused on things that were a little a little bit growthier where we would make our money on growth. And so over time, the nature of the sectors uh, that provide that growth has changed. And we, you know, have continued to try to create the ability to be competitively advantaged in the sectors that uh, allow us to see that superior growth profile. And in doing that, and, you know, we're clearly not unique, there are a number of firms that are trying to create their own set of um of competitive advantages based on the nature of the relationships they build often within a subsector or industry where they've had success and you know f- for us it's been again in that financial services fintech area where we have a very long history of success and teams of individuals the uh tom Haggertys and ganesh Rao's of the world who have spent enormous amount of time there in our uh, technology and business solutions area, you know, we've built enormous capability in things like automation where people like Jim Carlisle, uh, who leads that whole group, and his partners such as Mike Kesmerich and Josh Bresler and Jeff Swenson, all tend to focus on areas within, a, for example, the broad automation sector where we create you know, very deep relationships that give us an advantage in creating deal flow and hopefully uh, evaluating that. You know, uh, what Josh Nelson and Megan Preiner uh, have done in healthcare along with others like Mike Bell from our operating team who used to be the CEO of uh, one of our portfolio companies. um, Cineos, when it was inventive. You know, Dan Jones who runs our operating team where we try to deploy operating experts at companies to help our management teams improve key business processes in ways that accelerate revenue growth help them become more efficient at what they do so we can generate you know faster growth in uh, various metrics of profitability and cash flow. All of these very experienced individuals have again these deep networks of relationships and knowledge that help us create some level of of advantage in the places we want to invest.
0: So let me just what I've the, just, the, what I've just yeah. cited
1: is probably a story that others can tell in their own areas.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I keep hearing from lots of private equity firms this concept of growth as opposed to, like you had said, you know, sort of the ship ship shaping up companies and putting leverage on them, which is what the private equity business, for better or for worse, is what you're known for. But um, that changes the profile of the of the deal that you do in terms of the leverage and the equity, right? So how has that changed since 2007? I mean, TH Lee was involved in some big deals then where there were lots of sort of clubs involved in leverage and all sorts of things. Um, But the deals now are looking a little bit different in the sense that the leverage levels are high, but the equity checks are bigger.
1: Uh, Yes. So by the very nature, these growthier sectors trade at higher multiples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know when you have these higher multiples, debt will make up a smaller percentage of the overall capital structure. Um, but the, on the flip side, you're not dependent on leverage to drive the kinds of high rates of return that we're, we're trying to achieve. You're really focused on improving the operations of companies and riding both the secular growth curve as well as a specific competitively advantaged Accelerated growth curve for the company that you're buying. And that's where your returns are going to come from. And so there's a, uh, if you compare it to 2000, let's go not 2007, but let's go to post great financial recession, you know, their multiples were much lower. The types of companies traditionally being bought by private equity were less growthy you were still able to get a reasonable amount of leverage, even when the markets were difficult post-recession. And the amount of equity that was required would be a um, smaller percentage of the overall capital structure. In 2006 to seven, you saw a number of really large transactions being done that would often have anywhere from 10 to 30% equity sections. So the equity section was large, but it was driven by the overall size of that enterprise, not by the amount of leverage you can put on as measured as a multiple of the company's EBITDA. You were able to put seven to eight times EBITDA leverage on those companies. Today, you're also able to put seven to eight times if you want to, but the difference is those companies were probably being sold at anywhere from 9 to 12 to 13 times its cash flow as the enterprise value metric and today when you look at much faster growing companies which is as you point out where so many people in private equity are focused you know you're looking at multiples that could be twice that and you're still looking at probably seven to eight times leverage um, on, on those companies. Now, the plus on that leverage is the cost of debt is much lower, and so your coverage ratios are much better than they were in 2006, seven, eight, nine. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it also, yeah. by, you know when you think about those numbers, you're now looking at the bulk of the investment being equity, not debt. And so that changes, again, the nature of the profile of what we're doing. And And up until the last 18 months, That also put a constraint on how big the deal was we were able to do. But in the last 18 months, as you pointed out, there are some quite large deals that have been announced and a number of other very large deals that are being looked at. And so particularly the larger public players who are really focused on raising significant um, uh, assets to increase their assets under management, their AUM, which is a key metric that public market investors look at when they try to value the stock of these larger publicly traded uh, investors like the Blackstones and KKRs and, and uh, Carlisle's, you know, th- they are raising larger funds and have the, the ability to do, you know, once again, these larger deals. You're also seeing in a number of cases, the return of a, of a club deal structure where you have more than one GP going into these deals.
0: Yeah, let's talk Whereas, about that for a minute. But with with Medline, I think is what you're yep. referring to is so the return of the club deal, which was kind of fun to, to finally take a look at after all these years of not seeing them. I mean, you know, i just thinking about some of your last deals. Some of them were club deals like Clear Channel. And then you know some of them you did on your own. I mean, are you excited about the return of the club deal and And because you're smaller, do you feel like you don't maybe have to engage in those in the same way as the Blackstone would have to?
1: So you know we continue to target as we have you know really for the last fifteen years, um, you know mid market uh, size companies, so we define that as companies with enterprise values generally in the two hundred and fifty million to two and a half billion size range. Every now and then, we'll do a bigger deal, like when we bought Dun & Bradstreet a couple of years ago, where you know it was an area we had uh, an enormous amount of experience, where we had a very specific thesis for how we were going to turn that uh, company around uh, in a pretty dramatic way, and where we had a management team. In that, in that case, it was the management of one of our former portfolio companies, Black Knight Financial, that we were going to layer into the company to execute that turnaround plan so every now and then we'll do a bigger deal largely though we're highly focused on staying within that range of $250 million to two and a half billion of enterprise value and for us that means um, we don't need to bring in another GP as part of a club and the other area that has been very important to us as we think about sizing our funds and our ability to you know, be very disciplined in the the size of fund that we raise has been the very tight strategic partnerships we've created with a number of our LPs who today are very interested in co investing in our deals. So our ability to extend the reach of our fund well past, you know, what you might think in terms of underwriting a deal at the higher end of that, you know, up to two and a half billion of enterprise value exists because of the very tight strategic partnerships we have with a number of large LPs who are willing to write very large equity checks uh, in deals that, that that we're doing, all of oh, that's that means that for people like us, we're not we're not interested in so called clubbing as mm-hmm. um, you know part of what we're looking for. But if you go up to you know these these truly you know these twenty billion plus type of buyouts again, then even the largest of the firms out there with the largest of funds may often need to look at at partnering with other private equity firms again and these so-called club deals.
0: So that so um just sort of hinging on that kind of concept of co-investors and LPs that's interesting because I have heard from from other private equity firms too hey we you know don't mind club deals per se it's just in the last Kind of cycle, we learned who we like to partner with and who we don't, um, right. which is sort of interesting. And so it sounds like what you're saying is the partners you guys liked were some of your limited partners, some of your own investors.
1: Yeah, we, you know, again, the there's been an, an, a real evolution on, in the LP community where we now have a number of our uh, LPs who have built up their own internal capability to evaluate transactions, work on transactions and in some cases we have a we have a handful or so of our LPs who like to work in what they call shoulder to shoulder mode which is bring them in early they can help underwrite a transaction with us and you know again so long as we take the leadership role they're you know they're happy to provide significant equity underwrite to a um, a deal that um, that we'd like to do a company we'd like to buy and so, you know, again, that capability, which takes years and years to build on the part of the LP, and also years and years of relationship buildings to create the kind of trust and relationship that we have with, with so many of our LPs, allows us to function in a way that, given our target market, you know, doesn't bring back the need to have club deals.
0: Okay. So last thing then, in the vein of sort of everything and nothing has changed in in the world of private equity, with Blackstone going public in the last big cycle, say, it brought a ton of attention to your industry and a lot of backlash that the industry wasn't accustomed to because you'd always done things, as your name says, in private. Um, This time, we're seeing just little pockets of that bounce back. In the UK, in the last couple of weeks, we've sort of seen some pushback from officials. And of course, there's this issue with taxes and capital gains and how that's going to be taxed. And, and and that's, you know, an issue here in the US and the Biden administration. On the other hand, you have industries like tech that are really sucking up all of Washington's time. And private equity, even though you have become bigger, um, is in some ways becoming less important. Do you where do you sort of see you fitting the industry sort of fitting in that world and how do you see it playing out over the next 18 months as you know the market sort of shapes up and the administration puts the hammer down
1: well you know you're at you're asking a a great question i wish i had a great answer uh for you uh you know i talk about this with my Uh, partner and co-CEO, Todd Abrecht, uh, a lot, uh, and my former uh, co-president, Tony Genovi, and and Tom Hagerty, another senior partner uh, of ours, you know, we have a lot of of thoughts about these issues, but there's still so many uncertainties. And I think the uncertainties are around, you know, to your point, how does the government perceive private equity either as a a straw man to burn just on the basis Mm -hmm. of kind of a inaccurate I would say but broad you know public perception of of a financial services industry or do they you know truly understand the efforts that we have to really help make companies better that we can provide a you know catalytic events that will help expand employment of the companies that we own again given our focus on growth but also the capabilities that we can bring to companies that often don't have the kind of operating expertise that the internal deal operating teams at places like THL and and many of the others that we've talked about have and that if we can help make companies better and we can help companies that may have some significant underlying problems fix those problems you know that we can be good partners and you know very important contributors to you know the growth of the economy but also you know, providing jobs for broad ranges of individuals within our economy, particularly those you know who have um, historically struggled. If there's a recognition that that, in fact, is what we're trying to do and you know have had good success at, you know, then I think we can we can help play an important role. And there are there are a number of political leaders who do understand that and have had exposure. But you know, then again, you know, we're in a world where reality TV. <laughs> And social media tries to, um, you know, simplify things um, so that, that, you know, there are good players, bad players, and all sorts of things like that that really do not reflect the reality of, of the situation, but, you know, allow punching bags to be created. And, you know, to your point, you know, private equity is often a punching bag. And, you know, we're trying to do as much as we can to actually bring the facts out of both how we operate, what our efforts are to, you know, contribute to the the broader economy of this country and many countries around the world, and you know, be very mindful of the need for us to have a positive social impact that uh, affects every element of what you know we refer to as ESG and and insofar as we can deal very directly and proactively with helping to drive, um, diversity and, um, overall societal, uh, equity, um, you know, that, that is something that we're mindful of and, uh, very focused on.
0: I was sort of, I mean, it was sort of interesting, you know, last year towards the end of the Trump administration, when, you know, the issues with TikTok were bubbling up and some private equity firms were being tossed around as a way to sort of save that, um, save that business and save you know the united states apparently from right. whatever issues you know when that moment happened i thought wow you know h- how the world has changed um i guess it probably won't be the last opportunity for private equity to do something similar but anyway thank you that's our show for this week scott thank you so much for you are coming very on this is very illuminating and thank you to our producer craig hedich in new york And our final thanks, of course, go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And check us out every day on BreakingViews.com. Don't forget to tune in next time for another edition.